podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Hello, so it's episode four of our lockdown series and also episode four of the Sunderland Side Eye Watch Alongs. As you'll know by now, this is an FPL free zone, uh, but if not, hello and welcome. Now, please stop listening to this and go back to episode one of the series, starting off at 80 minutes 30 to get up to speed. For those that are still with us, hello. Uh, we're joined today by Nick and Stag, of course. Uh, Nick, first, you're all right, having a few sound difficulties and looking like a woodsman, but I hope you're back and are able to join us for this podcast. Hey man, yeah, I'm, I'm good, thank you. Just uh, enjoying lockdown life. Uh, get all, all getting very samey at the moment, but yeah, um, enjoying watching a bit of Sunderland Till I Die, still doing the uh, the weekly podcast, so some things haven't changed. Um, so here we are, we are Who Got Desist? You can find us on Twitter at WGTA underscore FPL, Tom at myself, WGTA underscore Nick at FPL Stag for Anthony, and we're also on Instagram WGTA.FPL, so What's on the pod this week, Anthony? Hey lads, how you getting on? Um, bit like that for me as well, Nick. Just another week of the same. Probably had my lockdown dip last week and I'm kind of coming back out of it again this week um, after another episode of Sunderland Until I Die in the Belt, I guess. Uh, so first of all, we'll start with the news, which football's return actually seeming a bit more like a reality than a dream, finally. And yet another Premier League player has joined the ranks of Jack Grealish and Kyle Walker um, being splashed across the front page of the tabloids for coronavirus rule and discretion. So that's fantastic. And having spoken, I guess, about Charlie Methven and making so many comparisons to The Office, this time we're with season two, episode four, playing poker, we really have an office-based episode of Sunderland Till I Die. So a pretty interesting episode overall to look at so many talking points again it's definitely a lot more interesting than that sounds i'm aware that putting it as an office-based episode is uh, one of those things but no it genuinely is like the episode i think of the season so yeah can't wait to get into that but first it is the news views and yeah i mean before we came on this evening i was about to say for this bit there was there was a hardening of views you know and people were starting to the momentum was starting to go behind right off the season i saw a few articles and a few kind of opinion pieces admittedly on twitter saying you know well, there's no point in starting a new season again it's all over it's just liverpool fans who are being placated to and the money men are going to win lo and behold bbc sport announcer project restart is being looked at the top clubs are meeting on friday and the 8th of june potential start is uh, being mooted uh, all behind closed doors of course what do you think of this I definitely feel like there's been a bit of a sea change, hasn't there, in the last week from the beginning of the week. Um, we had obviously the news about um, Holland and their league being suspended. We've already talked about previously on the last pod, the Scottish league being suspended. So a lot of the smaller leagues, you know, the, the smaller leagues in Europe um, looking to write off the season, whilst these sort of the main big, um, big leagues, La Liga, Bundesliga, Serie A and the Premier League it looks to be the opposite and they are going to continue on and um, and play the football through right or rain and, and it's going to happen. The main event's going to happen. Um, I mean, ultimately, we have discussed this on the last few pods. It's kind of a weekly news, obviously. Where is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? It does feel like it's probably now going to be happening. And to be honest, in, in, a, in a summer where there's not going to be any other sports on, at least it's going to give any us fans something to watch if, if it does take place and then um, we do go ahead I think we've we talked in depth about how we felt that it was going to be quite unrealistic to achieve considering we're still in the midst of a massive pandemic and doesn't look like lockdowns can be ending anytime soon still but the money will talk eventually so what the league are hoping to do is to get a, an 8th of June restart, which would mean finishing the season by the end of July. And that's all to fit into, remember UEFA's European plans that we were talking about previously with oh, the, yeah, the, the August extravaganza thing. Yeah, and so this is basically to try and fit that in. So this would be hoping that basically teams can get back to training in mid-May. I think the 18th of May has been kind of identified. But of course, we've already seen some of the clubs going into training individually. Uh, so Arsenal are back training individually, as are West Ham and Brighton. They've opened up their training grounds to players to train. Now, what's interesting about the Arsenal thing is that it's a bit of a misnomer to say they're back training. They're certainly not training as a squad. It's in, they're individual groups, and they're using 12 pitches and only leaving a certain number of players players in whilst they're there but basically the idea of opening the colony training ground is that it's safer than a park for the players to exercise in that the players had terrible no this is serious that the players had terrible trouble with fans coming up trying to get selfies with them when they were trying to stay fit in parks so the easiest thing to do was to open colony basically as a player safety thing 
Oh wow, really? Is it not like Ndombele and uh, and Sessegnon training on the on the field somewhere? It's a little bit different if it's Arsenal players, obviously. Um, but yeah, no, it's yeah, definitely interesting. Yeah. With... <laughs> Pepe have been up to no goody. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, I think Lacazette was what two? He was too close to somebody who was valeting his car. Um, yeah, wow, that sort of story you get down Arsenal these days. But yeah, no, Arsenal players, as Stag said, they're training uh, in in some ways. Um, they're all arriving in groups of five to do individual sessions. Yeah, they're using lots and lots of pitches. Each player is being assigned their own ball and players on a rotor and being told where to park as well. And lots of buildings at the training ground are closed. So it's a return to training in some ways. And with those sort of words, you get that little tingle of excitement. But I think the reality is that it's a return to training in name only. It's not quite the same as saying they're back to full contact. If you think about a player coming back after a long injury and they're doing some individual work, that's the kind of level of thing we're looking at, I think, here. In stark contrast then to the Premier League are the plans in Germany, where the equivalent of the football league there, which runs both the Premier League and what we would know as the championship in England, so the top two divisions, they're looking to be ready to return to play on the May the 9th, pending government approval. So it, it kind of seems like football will return to Germany at some point in May, as opposed to that May 9th date, which just seems to be kind of a, an ambitious head start, really. But the one thing to remember when it comes to Germany is that they're much further ahead of most other large European nations in terms of this whole virus pandemic thing in that they've kept deaths down their health system hasn't been really overloaded from the start of this and they actually have surplus testing at the moment as well which is something that most countries would be uh, dreaming of like even they're carrying out quite a lot of the Irish tests when we had a backlog at one point we were sending them to Germany so basically the the idea with the how they're going to run the Bundesliga is having spectator-free games, obviously, where only players, coaches, um, and the staff of the teams, medics, referees, ball boys, uh, ground staff, technicians, safety officers, and production staff for the TV will be present in the stadium. So that's about 300 people in a stadium is what they've kind of worked out would be the minimum. And what you'll also have then is the players and management being tested between trainings and before matches. It'll require 20,000 tests per week, which is 0.5% of all of German testing ability so pretty amazing but that's the cost of running football league in these times for strong dirt technique eh? also (laughs) and there's another development wasn't there net this week yeah it's it's a proposal from fifa to to support teams and help the players cope with the upcoming fixture congestion as they try and complete the the league um, as quickly as possible ahead of obviously a new season starting um and that's the plan um to allow up to five substitutions in a game so increasing from three to five obviously this would also um require approval from the um, international football association board and the you know, the Premier League before it would be enacted um, into the Premier League. But it was quite interesting to think about how that might have an impact as well on fantasy if it was ever to return for us. Um, Obviously, the idea of five substitutions might mean um, more players being substituted before that famous 60-minute mark and um, more captain blanks, perhaps, or one-pointer captains, players coming off the bench to to block other players. So, yeah, that would be very interesting to see how that works out for us as well. Yeah. Okay, and speaking of things, how things work out, Alan Pardew, the luckiest manager in the world, he could have been relegated again, but with that Dutch uh, league call-off, he uh, was saved by the looks of it. Seven points from safety with my birth team, uh, Ado Den Haag. Uh, today, uh, this only comes to mind today because he was uh, forced to deny he was going to get a €100,000 bonus for avoiding relegation. And finally, Moise Ken, or Moise Keen, keen to have a party by the sounds of it. Um, yeah, uh, another player player who's uh, been in the news for all the wrong reasons as Stag mentioned earlier on in the front pages and Everton uh, not very happy with his antics are they? No I think he's a, it's a painting football really in a in a in a bad light but ultimately that's what the tabloids do isn't it they like to find the worst stories possible that footballers have committed and, and publish it on on the front of their newspapers so there's, there's not too much more to say about that is there? Certainly not. So let's move from bad stories to good stories and uh, go to Season 2, Episode 4 of Something Till I Die after this break. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Right, so we're back and it's season two, episode four of uh, Sunderland Till I Die, playing poker. Pretty much the episode of the series, because I think there are lots of tumultuous events in this one which really define um, how the season is and will live long in the memory. Uh, but this episode, the scene opens and 
really we're thrown straight into the deep end, aren't we? Of Josh Madger signing for Bordeaux. Uh, there's a voiceover as well from Stuart, who actually seems rather shocked at the events, or at least expresses astonishment at how things transpired. Negotiating with Josh, um, it's all moving along. Jack calls me and said Josh is coming in, picked up all his stuff and said he's gone. And I said, well, hold on a minute, I haven't accepted anything. Then that 1.5 million euros, and he makes the point that this means nothing compared to promotion. But a million euros isn't worth anything in comparison to promotion. I mean, that's a huge deal, isn't it? That really just smacks us in the face since the episode starts. Like, what do we think about this? What's the detail behind the deal? And I said, Anthony, you've had a look into it. Yeah, so there are quite a lot of reports about how this kind of came to be and that when Stuart Donald took over Sunderland of the summer, Josh Maja hadn't really been identified as a key player for that team. And so he was still on less than £1,000 per week at the time. And there had been hopes or Martin Bain had wanted to tie down the player in May 2018. That never happened. And there were attempts to resume contract negotiations in July, which it seems the club actually pushed back and wanted to wait and see what happened. And so by the time they'd actually made their first offer of a contract to Maja in October, he'd already scored nine goals in the league that season. And he was offered £2,750 a week, rising to just under 5k per week if they got promoted. Obviously, at this point then, what Donald later describes as the perfect storm kind of arises and he just keeps on scoring and so they keep having to up their offers to him in November. They offer 5,000 a week rising to 7.5k which Maja's team actually countered with an offer of they wanted 8,000 per week with a £3.5 million buyout clause and when you think about how the season came to play out that looks like it would have been a steal for the club but at the time it was too much for them to, to go for it. Yeah, eight. Well, as we're saying uh, off camera, eight thousand pounds a week versus promotion, effectively. I mean, yeah, twenty-four appearances, fifteen goals. What Major scored before he left. Um, I mean, uh, replacing that guy, as Eddie McGeady um, says a little while later, is is, is a very, very difficult, uh, very bitter pill to swallow for the guys. And you know, it's been bubbling away uh, beneath the first three episodes. We have mentioned it a few times. Indeed, episode two ended with uh, Major looking a bit suspicious. Episode three, he was he was amongst the people and kind of giving them false hope, as it were. But I mean, it it really just uh, seems to have fallen away. And yeah, you know, the money that he's on um, at Bordeaux, you can't really argue with that, can you? No, so Lakeith reported that he's on about £57,000 a week at Bordeaux or €65,000 a week, which is obviously a huge jump on anything that Sunderland were offering or anything that they were even looking for from Sunderland. But what's actually the most interesting thing is that when Bordeaux came in to make the transfer for him, they were quite happy to do a Bosman which would have meant he would have signed for them at the end of the season, as opposed to in January. But Sunderland decided, right, we just want to make some money off him now and took the 1.5 million while it was on offer for them. But the club actually were entitled to about £500,000 because he was a young player being taken on a Bosman. So they only really gained about a million from it and lost probably promotion. Yeah, yeah, I did find it interesting, but really. you don't see much at all of um, of Josh Major in this episode. Was he obviously such a you know critical part of the past few episodes? It's just the introduction. That's the end. That's the end of Major. The club's moving on. They've forgotten about him. But yeah, I mean, looking at Stuart, we basically he, you see him and um, he's spoken to Jack Ross and sort of said that he hasn't accepted anything. But apparently, you know, Major's just left. He's just picked up his stuff and and has gone. And um, in terms of um, Stuart. It, does look like you know he's he's a little bit out of control, and, and we're going to talk a lot more in depth about Stuart later on in this because um, he's such a critical um, part of this episode and his dealings. But it does um, does seem like he's lost a little bit of control of this situation. He didn't necessarily need to um, sell Madger, but Madger's taken matters into his own hand. It's player power here. He's gone. He's decided. He's moving on. The chairman, at least how he tries to present it, can do nothing now about this scenario. The player's gone. And they have, and the club has to move on. Yeah, I mean that early, this early sort of stark realization that yeah, that key man is out of there. I think it really sets up this episode incredibly well because it is like something as I mentioned earlier that had been bubbling away for the first three episodes. As the guys said, there's lots of reasons why that's happened and how the impacts on Stuart is kind of what this episode's all about. And that really sets the train in motion for what we see uh, in uh, playing poker this episode. On the river where they used to build the boats. So after the credits then, uh, we're back in game and Sunderland 
Sean of their talisman just can't score, can they? No one's turning those Brian Oviedo golden balls into the onion bag. And uh, number nine, uh, White, who was signed in the summer, looks a pretty bad buy. There's lots of misses. You know, Madger was scoring before. He's not anymore. Much to the fans' disdain. Madger took the chances. They had one touch the whole of the game. He put the ball in the back of the net. Move the draw. Disappointing. All is clear. They need a striker. And uh, yeah, as Anthony said, there's going to be a lot of office drama here. Um, and Jack Ross says, you know, there's going to be, there's, there's always going to be a difficult position this one. And McGeady says, you know, as I mentioned a second ago, that there was always going to be a bit of an issue with these guys. But I mean, losing a talisman, I mean, we know from our FPL experiences that a talisman are really important to clubs. And I think losing talisman is very important. And this isn't an area that uh, Sunday Side Eye is new to. So last year, Lewis Graben, who was scoring the goals at the first half of the season of the championship, obviously moved on in January. And they ended up, uh, you know, Ashley Fletcher, who was a bit rubbish before Josh Madger rose to fill that sort of uh, that sort of position, and now they've uh, found themselves in the same predicament again, haven't they? But yeah, losing a talisman, I guess, is is kind of the upshot of what we're seeing here, isn't it? Yeah, and of course it was going to be a huge loss to them, and you could kind of immediately that that scrappy opening clip that they just showed time after time, where they just didn't have the finisher there. It, it was very reminiscent to me of when Sean Maguire left Cork City to go to Preston North End halfway through the League of Ireland season in 2017. So this was a player who'd at that point scored 20 goals in 21 games, helping Cork to winning 21 of their first 22 league games that season. Now, what's most striking about it is that. In spite of having you know, a huge amount of points early on in the season, Cork ended up only winning with two games to spare because Johnny Maguire remained the golden boot uh, winner for the whole league, having left with 10 games to go. Cork only won two of their final 10 games, shorn of the striker. And it just shows that when you don't have that finishing touch, it can really just destroy a team. And I think that's what we start to see here. A cotton head of the snake, isn't it, to some extent? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think we've seen it as well from um, an FPL perspective in, in certain teams, though perhaps um, when I did some analysis actually of some of the FPL teams, um, perhaps um, a Premier League team has a bit more ability to adapt um, to it. I think a key example perhaps from last season at least was Eden Hazard. He was the you know huge absence for Chelsea, at least on the surface, uh, because of the creativity. And um, when we did our talisman theory, for instance, he was responsible for 158 FPL points um, excluding appearances, which was 26.03% of Chelsea's total, which is just absolutely incredible in terms of the impact he had on that season. And, and just hammering home this point, Pedro apparently was the secondary talisman for that team. And you forget how he's like, Pedro was second for points last season for Chelsea. It's just incredible. Because um, um, this season, he's only got a goal and to assist and played eight games. So he's been largely absent too. But with Chelsea, it's, you know, it's not a direct comparison really with Sunderland because they were able to, bring in new players who've emerged like sort of Mason Mount and Tammy Abraham they've built their team around new players and they've adapted quite well and this is um this is based on the underlying stats for instance you know actually with Chelsea their um, goal conversions improved from last season as has their minutes per chance not improved by a dramatic amount but only a slight amount just indicating that teams can adapt perhaps um Another case would be Spurs um, and, you know, last season Harry Kane was their talisman and they've struggled um, since he's been injured in the last eight games, for instance. And with Son, um, Son's kind of took the mantle for a little bit, at least for the first four um, games before he got injured as well. So, you know, these clubs do really tend to struggle. A lot of clubs do tend to struggle when a key man goes, a player like Maggio, who's obviously scoring non-stop. And, uh, you know, that's why I guess they, they had to try and find a replacement, or at least that's what was going through Stewart's head um, on that deadline day. It may seem like a ridiculous comparison to make, but I think what's happened to Sunderland here is what happens to almost every football manager manager who is has their striker taken off them when they're managing outside of Europe's top five leagues. It yeah. always happens in January that you're left floundering, running through your scout reports, trying to find somebody on a free because you've been screwed over again because some German second-tier team have come in and taken your guy from your Swiss team or whatever you're playing as. It's a struggle. Uh, I know, and I know the feeling all too well as the Barnet manager who's just lost Jamie Thomas uh, to a championship uh, club. But yeah, I mean, that sets nicely up the position that we see. Uh, Stuart Donald, who's in his office in Oxfordshire, actually, not in Sunderland. Um, he's uh, saying that he's been deceived. He's at the wrong, in, wrong end of a deal. And uh, he says this as well. I've also felt a real determination not to be stitched up again. 
not be stitched up again, eh? Foreshadowing. Um, but he recognises he's now negotiating from a position of weakness. I mean, we see that they're looking for two strikers. He says, we've got to sign two strikers, TC, speaking to Tony Cotton, not Top Cat. Um, first to the target, John Marquis at Portsmouth, but later found fame on Star Trek Voyager as a rebel cell. Um, yeah, that, that doesn't seem like it's gone through. And you see the always wrangling. And I think there is a little bit of a conscious call out to the old fashioned way. I think this episode and that episode are really related because Stuart and his team have been given the runaround big time, aren't they, by agents here? Um, and as we start to land on Will Grigg, um, obviously the song, I'm just going to play a little bit of it now. Um, scoring goals for Wigan. Uh, he shows up on Neil Fox's YouTube video. And uh, yeah, the fee at the beginning is two million. Silly money uh, already. We begin to see it disintegrate as well. Uh, Stuart is like, petulantly refusing that this is the case. The pressure begins to build. And Stuart starts to take it personally. He starts harumphing a little bit. I think we've all been there, haven't we? Working in a time-pressured environment. And the pressure cooker of the, uh, of the deadline day must be absolutely crazy. What sort of experience have we had of working in a, under those sorts of circumstances? You must have something, Nick. I only have college essays, and that's nowhere near as interesting. As You've I got was. lots of stuff. <laughs> just, just, just talk about generalities. You'll be all right. Obviously, in the workplace environment, you, you can get caught up in, in certain projects, have to work late, work late into evenings. I know um, one, one time we couldn't do the pod, I think, because Stag was busy, busy working late in the office, staying there, trying to, to solve the, uh, the case, whatever was going on. And I've been in, um, you know, I've worked overnight before working on massive projects, and it, and it can be can be very stressful and you can see it in Stuart that he is starting to stress out he's you know head in his hands he's like pacing around and and you can tell as well Stuart that like you can tell Will Griggs his guy and I feel like he's almost sold the story of the song the Will Griggs on fire you know the you know sung at the World Cup like Will Griggs was a player my wife had heard of you know Eric Cantona I've been talking about him on the TV and in, in comedic sketches and stuff like that and you know every every person at the World Cup was singing that song. So I feel like Stuart's almost believing in that hype and he's, he's got it in his head. This is the guy he wants and that's, he's going to get this regardless of whatever dis- financial decisions he's, he's um, got to make. And you do feel, I feel like he does lose his head a little bit in this moment as well. Absolutely. He starts the train wreck, doesn't he? There's you know, a few back and forth and there's that really interesting call with Jack Ross who basically counters that Will Grigg is not worth the money. She was the offer he put in. He's not worth any more than that. That's categorical, isn't it? Like, remember about foreshadowing. I remember that point for later on, but dear me, I don't think you could put that any more strongly that he's not worth the money but, or more than the current bid, which I think at this point is about two million. Yeah, I mean, eventually you do see Stuart go in for him again, despite being not back and not back and not back. What about one more dive in for our main man? I knew you'd do this. Up the offer. I knew you would do this. And he's told, you know, by his guys that his like little cabal that it's his money. But yeah, it it doesn't look very good. And the more they look at it, um, the the more they seem to just not be able to conjure up an alternative that have gone too far. It's got to be this guy or nobody. And Tony Cotton says it's like you know a dog with a bone. You want to be a dog with a bone? Don't want to look people up the wrong way. I know. You know, uh, or give people the message that you're so desperate that they yeah. can do whatever they want. Yeah. This is really like a sunk cost fallacy in humans. And I've spoken about this in regard to FPL a few times, but uh, I guess like behavioral science is crystallizing a situational impact you recognize into a thing. And this is the idea of saying, I've come this far, so I've got to see it through, which I'm sure we've all done in, in our own lives. And you definitely see that writ large here with Stuart just kind of thinking, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going, keep going, keep going until I get the guy. Trans deadline day, the madness of a trans deadline day is definitely a fertile place for that, isn't it? Where you definitely see you know, transfers being made, players being bought who go on to never play again. Like you know, Sunderland is a great place to start with examples like that, like Papi Digibodji, who was bought by David Moyes, I think, for eight million from Chelsea and never played a game. Uh, so, yeah, maybe a few examples from trans deadline day which uh, could, uh, could fill into that. 
Yeah, I mean, Sunderland are particularly bad, aren't they? You've obviously, there's so many cases you can think of. The likes of Jermaine Lenz is this another one. And obviously, the, the famous Jack Rodswell, who was on, I think, £75,000 a week in the Championship or something. Absolutely in- incredible. But yeah, I think I think with Will Grigg, it, it is very much foreshadowing with Jack Ross. And is, I'm glad they had that clip in there where he got told it's not worth it. Because, you know, I was, I was looking at the numbers, to be honest, with Will Grigg. In the, that season, he'd had four goals in 17 appearances. Stuart's talking about signing this 30 um, goals a season striker who's going to score a hat-trick in the playoff final. But Will Griggs had a record of 17, four goals in 17 appearances. And that season, he had four goals in 18 appearances with League One. So he basically matched his record. So it wasn't even like his, his form had dropped or anything. But I feel like with Stuart, he just he lost, um, lost track of the numbers there. Yeah, I think he just all rational thought had gone out the window at this point. Like Richard uh, Hill, his, uh, his colleague, says this. You fell into the trap of January transfer windows. And you kind of see Stuart listening to the guys, don't you? But he's kind of detached. He's like a child zoning out when you're being told off. The calculated judgment you're making is, is not really very calculated. Is it not? My, no, not in my opinion, no. At this point, it doesn't make financial sense, which is all we can judge it on. And you see this kind of great moment when you see a little smile creep over his face. And it's like a moment of epiphany, that feeling you get before you do something a bit reckless, you know, is a huge gamble. Cinematography here is brilliant, as that moment is interspersed with an insightful voiceover. I like a deal that makes me feel alive. You know, you can overcomplicate lots of things, but you've just got to go with your gut. And then that kind of starts this quick sequence of events. You know, he ups the offer to 3 million, less than an hour before the deadline. The offer's up to 3 million, rising to 4 million, a 220% increase on the initial offer. There's fraught scenes, a phone call comes through, five minutes to go, they've signed it. Uh, he says, I'm resigning as chairman next December. As they say, we've got a deal finally. You see Richardson Stewart cuddling on the sofa. Uh, he jokes he's not going to have enough to pay the pizza delivery man. He blows out his cheeks and says, This football club is going to kill me. And the end slide shows that Grigg is the most expensive signing in League One history. So let's go ahead and deconstruct this huge pivotal moment in the series. Josh Magic on, Will Grigg in. What do we make of this? Jack Ross said that the player wasn't worth £1.25 million. Stuart Donald went on the phone and said to Wigan, £1.25 million, take it or leave it. And he ended up paying up to as far as four million pounds for that player. Like, it's, it's absolutely stunning. And I find it quite interesting that in sp- he's getting all the advice from everyone around him. He himself knows, and he even uh, he admits himself that he probably shouldn't have said publicly that they plan to get X numbers of players in. And yet still, he allows himself to be effectively exploited by the market around him. And it is kind of that... Um, that theory that he himself he thinks that he himself can be the difference for the club and kind of forgets his position whereas Jack Ross is kind of worried that he even kind of points out that you know he's going to be the one that's judged on this and and we will see later that it, you know Donald actually starts to judge Ross on this lapse of his own judgment as well it's for, for, for me, it's it's a stunning moment because it goes so in the face as well of everything Charlie Methvin's been trying to do, which is like scaremongering the staff about cuts, the fact that the club needs to, you know, tighten its belt, cut its cloth. And then suddenly they spunk huge amounts of money, like a huge percentage of their annual revenue on one player who, as Nick said, had scored about as many, as many goals that season as there were millions in his transfer fee. It's um, yeah, it's absolutely bonkers, and yeah, I was going to make that point about the, the last three episodes of all being about you know Charlie Methon um, cutting costs, the piss take party stops now, all of that um, blab, and it's just like to Sunny say, okay, you know they've been talking about how they're going to save money, and they're not going to just write a check to to make things happen in the same way, and then. They, they go ahead and smash the, the League One transfer record in, in January last minute for um, for a player who's, who's not worth the uh, the money. As I said, he's only scored four goals so far at that point. You know, one third of what um, Josh Maggio scored. It's crazy, isn't it? 
I mean, he did score those four goals in the championship, let's note, and Sunderland are in League One. And he actually does have a very decent record in League One. So the last three seasons he'd played at that, in that division, he'd averaged 21 goals a season. Um, he'd only scored five goals in the championship between 2016 and 17. Uh, but for Wigan uh, in 2017-18, scored 19. 15-16, scored 25. And uh, for Milton Keynes in 14-15, he scored 20. So it's he's definitely a man for whom League One is his level. And I think I can see why he looked at him and thought about that but I think as Charlie put it in the clip you heard a little while ago he was the club saw him coming didn't they and they because they knew that they needed a striker it's like if Man United go out and say I need a striker all the agents are going to be quoting 100 million no matter who the player is and you end up with OG Nogalo and a few other views on this as well so our friend Chris at Orsamo um, said basically this that there's a lack of planning which ended up in a situation where they were pushed and they basically, you know, they couldn't get Marquee because they wanted 10 million. And Stuart ended up going against, as we documented, the advice of his appointed expert in Jack Ross and paying a lot of money. It's very difficult to be forgiving of Stuart here, isn't it? Like, you know, as you've noted, as uh, like the piss take party, all that sort of rhetoric is completely undermined by the fact that, you know, the non-playing staff now seem to be taking the flack for poor decisions being made in terms of the playing staff. And especially that's true if you think about this episode being juxtaposed with just the last episode where, you know, Sophie Ashcroft, according to the drama at least, had been laid off. Um, so if you think about that and start a contrast with this, them smashing the the, uh, the transfer record, you kind of think, well, yeah, it's one a very poor business decision. Like, you know, but his lackey says exactly that. At this point, it doesn't make financial sense, and it's really not. It doesn't like good footballing one either because the football expert, his in-house football expert, Jack Ross, has said it's not worth it. As Stag mentions, not the fact they're talking about it, it's just mental. I just wouldn't. Yeah, absolutely crazy. I mean, can we even empathise with Stuart here? Can we even recognise the emotions? Because we are looking at it from the cold distance of our sofa, aren't we? Well, I think the ultimate thing is he he made promises. This is how Charlie tries to sell it as well about them, you know, them coming to Sunderland, trying to make promises about how, you know, they're going to be signing a player. And essentially, he, he felt, you know, that he had to deliver on that promise regardless. And if that meant that he was opening his checkbook and, and spending three million, that meant that he was spending that money, his own personal money, because he was looking to make it work at Sunderland. And if he, you know, you saw clips, for instance, about, you know, the Roker report and people saying, there was going to be a missed opportunity if they didn't buy anyone in this window if they blew it if they didn't find a major replacement that would be it they wouldn't be qualifying you know they're, they're in a title race well not just a title race they're in a promotion race here and it was you know promotion was absolutely critical for Sunderland that season to get out of league one as quickly as they could and losing major meant they had no um striker we saw the clips of wyke and you know not being able to score a goal for love nor money so they needed someone to come in and that's that's, I guess, what how Stuart was viewing it. He he had a promise. He'd made a promise that he was going to sign a player forward and he had to deliver on that pro- promise. And uh, unfortunately, yeah, it, it meant spending a lot of money. To paint this, though, as the club failing to replace Josh Maja is kind of to forget that they were going into this window, as they say, looking to pick up two strikers. So, they okay, maybe they failed to get the marquee player, but they completely forgot, sorry, not, not trying to make a pun on the other forward, but what they also ended up not doing was getting the the substitute for your Maja if he had stayed, for example. And so they've kind of doubly failed. So kind of tying into Chris's comment that, you know, the club hadn't planned for this from... October or November when they should have been figuring out who even they could get on loan from a Premier League or Championship club in just to have as their second striker like there were options out there for sure and so it wasn't just a matter of oh they thought they could keep Maja and they got caught with their pants down well at the end of the day what it was was just you know as Donald Tows says you know I like a deal that makes me feel alive and he ended up bidding six times for the same player and effectively making the club a laughing stock. Yeah, I, th- I think it's almost like the gambler's instinct kicked in rather than being a sound business decision. I just think he completely lost all sense of perspective. And as I mentioned earlier, the sunk cost fallacy, that's what kicked in and that's what was driving his decisions at that point. Like, just talk about how Stuart looks when this has been filmed and shown, like how you perceive him as, an, as, as a viewer. Like, I really think it made him look naive. Like in episode two, for example, he spoke well about his aims for clubs run the old-fashioned way. 
But this seems to all be underpinned by a sense of naivety, as far as I'm concerned. And you, even through his actions here, he basically contributes to and becomes complicit in this new money-driven culture that he seems to hate so much. Like he becomes part of it. He caves epically. And I think that that's kind of an underlying kind of feature of, of how Stuart comes out of this. He just looks desperate and he looks like an ill-prepared businessman who's made a terrible decision. I think obviously, yeah, that is how it looks, and you know that how that's how it's portrayed on the camera as well. But I think ultimately we do have the benefit of hindsight here, to a certain extent. If if it worked out for Will Grigg, if he had netted those twenty goals or whatever, um, and they had got promoted, you know, top of the division, then perhaps we would be speaking differently right now. I think it's worth highlighting that. Um, no, I tend to agree with both of you in regards to Stuart in these particular scenes. Oh yeah, no, that's definitely true. And I think that, like, just to bring it to FPL for a second, that other thing that we seem to be known for, um, if you make a ridiculous call on FPL, so you bring in a one percent own player and captain him, like nine times out of ten, you look like an idiot. But one time out of ten, when that comes off and the main captaincy pick fails, you get eighty points and the average is thirty. You look an absolute genius. And I think that that's what he was hoping for there. The issue is, is that if you take out the anecdote and look at it rationally. It's too much of a gamble to make, I think, especially the you know, the fact he bursts his budget on this guy. As I mentioned, he does have a pedigree there. Um, but as we'll find out a little bit later, he doesn't seem the player who's going to fit in with the system that Jack Ross wants to play. And I think that more than anything just shows uh, how naive Stuart is and how much he got wrapped up into that, into the madness of the January transfer window. He fell into the trap. Cool. Well, I mean, after this, we're, we're finally out of the office. We've been in the office for a long time. And you know, we're amongst the fans again. They all seem, funnily enough, satiated by the big money signing of Grig. Lots of talking heads. And to be honest, the rest of the episode feels an aftershock to this big moment. Um, Charlie, we see him. I think we, we kind of saw him briefly in Tony Cotton's office. But we see him kind of pu- directly connecting public perception with the signing that's just been made. In terms of maintaining the trust of the fan base, that we are owners who deliver on what we promise. We see Stuart being cuddled in the boozer. Fans are appreciative, um, and they say it's the best piece of transfer business we've seen for a long time. That's just irritating, isn't it? Because like you, you just know that they're just going to turn on him if it doesn't work out, and you know it's just it's just as long as there's someone pouring the money and they don't care. It's just you know. Stuart Donald has abandoned his idea of the old way and, you know, a club that's somewhat self-sufficient and all this sort of thing. But the the fans as well have completely forgotten everything that they'd been told about trying to have a club that was self-sufficient. And, you know, when the fans are funding the club and it all kind of ties together, it's the club that you own. And now suddenly it's just, no, the big man has just gone and spent big on a player who was unbelievable in League One in 2016 before he went to the Euros and had a song. Yeah, I mean, this completely erodes all of the setup and all of the high-minded, highfalutin, highly principled stuff that they were saying, right? It just, make, it just makes me kind of think, you know what? Yeah, people are fickle, aren't they? Just wave a bit of money. Money, money is the opium of the football fan. And you see it's all Will Grigg being well onto the pitch, don't you? Like, you know, Charlie's uh, proudly next to him. And he also says that um, he's been treated uh, differently up there in the north. Some of the Sunderland fans, who I've got to know a bit better, have said for Southerners... Stuart and I seem quite down to earth. I guess they're kind of planting to receive something in the future there, which we're not going to go into on this pod. Wink, wink. Uh, anyway, uh, the game starts. This is a match with a lovely little reference to episode one. Uh, Nick Barnes uh, says it starts complaining about the, how loud the music is ahead of the kickoff. Remember episode one when they were talking about uh, the, the EDM at the beginning? This is, this. this is how I do it. I'll be DJ. You've got to try and build people up and you've got to try and get up the atmosphere building. Yeah. And you hear from the man himself, Will Grigg. Uh, he has a Sky Sports interview and uh, you see this uh, fantastic little foreshadow snippet of him in a hotel room uh, setting his target for the season. My personal target would probably just get to 10 goals and go from there. It's obviously a big ask. 10 and 16 would be a really good return, but um, it's something that I back myself to do and something I think the team needs. Yeah, 10 goals in a half season, I should have said a second ago. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not going to be very good, is it? And you know, we've got this build-up, this excitement, Will Grid's uh, debut. Uh, it's met with failure, isn't it? And there's a procession of games where poor Will Grid, he just can't score, can he? Uh, you see Jack Ross using the ultimate football manager cliche. He's getting in the right positions, and that's reassuring. For me, uh, I'm pleased to see him in those positions tonight. It's why we brought him to the club, and 
he keeps putting himself in those positions and we keep creating the opportunities for him, then he will take. And we start to hear the first smattering of discontent about uh, Jack Ross, don't we? Like we go to the Roker report and yeah, the scenes are, are rather snaky, aren't they, Stag? Oh, this is absolutely unbelievable, this, this particular scene. So we have the the host quizzing, um, first of all, Stuart Donald on the signing and basically how he fits into this system and why they've bought the player in the first place. It's, it's questioning the motivation of the, the buy, the amount that they've paid, who wanted him first. And this is where we see something really interesting happen. And Stuart Donald, who having been told the, by his manager, by Ross, that you know, 1.25 million is too expensive. It's just not worth it. Has suddenly started to say that, you know, this was his player. This was the number one transfer target. And now it was up to Jack Ross to make him fit in the team. Uh, it, it's completely throwing him under the bus. Will Grigg was the number one target that we had in January. And that was Jack's target. I pushed the boat out. <sighs> It was, um, yeah, it was pretty dreadful, wasn't it? I mean, we, we see um, Graham, Graham, the host, he, he um, challenges Stuart quite heavily, um, asking for blame, who, who's for blame here? And, and you see Stuart is absolutely rattled and he, and he, he yeah, he basically shafts Jack Ross. And that was Jack's target. It was, um, you know, Jack's target. I, you know, I just paid the bills, it was Jack's target. Ultimately, and you know, Char- Charlie has to step in, doesn't he? Charlie steps in for the rattle Stewart, saying this is not fair to talk about publicly about employee performances, and and puts puts Graham in his place a little bit because yeah. we saw the um, the previous times there on the Roker report, it was all very friendly and they're all very nicey nicey, but this time, you know, the the, the tr- uh, critical um, and challenging questions come on, and I wonder if they'll they'll be back on after that. Oh, it, but it is it is barefaced uh, how things change and how Stuart is trying to shift the blame onto Jack Ross or at least kind of start to cover his back plausible deniability for anybody who knows me well um but I mean if you listen to that with the information that we know about what Jack Ross said on the phone the day they were doing the Will Grigg deal not a chance not talking about it. and you hear those key words and that was Jack's target that was Jack's target that's when the blame starts to kind of be apportioned outwards. Like He had a clear choice there. He could have said, no, this is on me. I went for this. But he chooses not to. He conflates and he blurs the line of responsibility. And he makes it sound like Jack was complicit in the, in the arrival of Greg, which is simply untrue. It really is quite sinister. I don't know whether it was, it's, it's conscious or if it's unconscious, but it hints at a really kind of conniving side to Stuart, I thought. And that kind of honest, earnest, sort of unassuming image that we've been given to begin with. Getting involved in Sunderland gave me a chance to run a football club in what I perceive was an old-fashioned way, whereby everyone would feel that they own their football club again. Really looks like it's being punctured, doesn't it? It kind of reminds me of a, a child being scolded by their parent for doing something wrong and turning around and saying, oh, but it was my my bigger sister's idea. You know, I, I didn't want to do it, but they made me do it. You know, I spent all the money just because Jack told me to. Don't blame me. And it, it was unbelievable. So you could see it as sinister or you could see it as childish or just, you know, self-defense gone the wrong direction. But it doesn't look good. No, it certainly does not. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, I was just going to reiterate what both of you said. It, it is a very, very bad moment for Stuart. And yeah, especially with what we've seen of his phone conversation with Jack Ross. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's shocking, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and the, the buck should really stop with him, shouldn't it? I mean, I've written on the on the running order, should the buck stop with him? But I don't even think that's a question. I think that's just a by-the-by thing. I mean, yes, but he's got that convenient lightning rod, hasn't he? And I... I it's kind of like a, Ma- a Mike Ashley thing in Newcastle, isn't it? Though we'd always blame the manager and use him as a lightning rod to get out of responsibility for himself. Like I kind of wonder, like you heard the smatterings of kind of discontent with uh, with Jack Ross. I wonder if Stuart had begun to see which way the wind was blowing uh, with Jack and then started to capitalise on that. And again, I personally see parallels with the old-fashioned way. And now Stuart is just falling prey to that culture because he doesn't like, you know, the quick win media cycle culture. He's just blaming the manager rather than taking responsibility for himself. 
Yeah, and if we if we bring the episode on just a tickle, you get to Jack Ross in his car, and he's talking about you know feeling the burn of criticism, but that you know if he can't accept that criticism, then the job would swallow him up. And I think what you're actually seeing is that Jack Ross's boss has been swallowed whole and doesn't know how to deal with it. And there's there's a real kind of contrast between them both because what's so unfair about this is that the fans only saw this as as late as we saw it, and no matter what the reports say, and no matter what, unless that Stuart Donald came out himself and took the blame for this at the end of the day it's going to be Jack Ross who gets hounded down the sidelines it's going to be Jack Ross and the players and Will Greg who's going to get all the pressure from this and none of them really put themselves in this position the only you know the only people who are coming out of this looking well are Wigan's negotiating team <laughs> yes absolutely it's never the gift horse in the mouth they say I don't know why I said horse with a th there, but we'll go. We'll, we'll go with it. Um, so yeah, I mean, following this little bit, little burns, um, we see Greg finally scoring. He scores a sympathy penalty, and our power Luco Nine, who we don't really see in this one, gets the FPL assist. And we see him kind of cutely celebrating when he gets a little penalty, and you think, "Ah, oh, Luke, just want to give him a cuddle." Um, and McGeady um, explains after the game that he kind of let him have it and he launched into this kind of little gallant speech actually about how everybody in the club wants him to score and how everybody in the club knows what they, where they need to be. I want him to score and I want him to score to make the goals. Everyone inside this club, everyone inside that dressing room knows where we want to be. Promoted, that's, that's where we want to be. But sometimes you have to be patient, it doesn't always just come at once. And I just want to dive, digress here with the Irishman. Uh, Aidan McGeady, colon, hero, not a colon hero, um, or is he trying to come across as well as he can with him being on a Premier League wage and League One and all that? Like, I mean, McGeady's spoken a couple of times in this episode, actually. I think he does actually come across quite well as one of those players that actually does care about the club. He's no longer there, but he's still being paid by Sunderland to this day. Yeah, it actually strikes me seeing Aidan McGeady taking on this guy's because I, I think for years he was just, I guess, just because of the style of player he is and the nomadic career that he's had where often he's been cast aside at big clubs and gets another big move somewhere else he's and I guess because of his performances for Ireland as well where he kind of comes off the bench and does a few twists and flickers but often actually gets nowhere he's not the sort of player you perceive as having this leadership ability the kind of the noose or the bravery to kind of come forward and to stand up for somebody and and even to give away a ball to give a sympathetic penalty as well as you say to bring the striker into things it's it's a totally different side of Aidan McGeady and I think he comes out of this looking quite well and he's clearly giving his all for the club as you say Tom but also on the pitch he's delivering the performances and obviously matching his wage is very difficult to do but at the same time he's definitely doing his bit yeah exactly I think he's certainly one of the heroes of the episode and he he came across very honourable in um, letting Will Grigg um, take that penalty and you know helping restore his confidence hoping that he would go on a on their winning run and scoring run because, you know, ultimately Will Griggs, um, you know, pivotal part of that team, um, especially with the money spent on him. And uh, yeah, he McGeady comes across well here. Cool. Well, um, after helping Will Grigg uh, score one of only four goals uh, this season, uh, we move on to the end of the episode. So as the episode closes, uh, we see Stuart reflecting on the events of this episode. He spent above budget and he lays bare, as we saw in this, I think, episode one of the difference, uh, the amount of money he's going to spend uh, to keep Sunderland League one. You know, if we don't go up, Sunderland football club's going to cost £25 million to run in League one. What we don't want to do is go down that route, risk not having enough money to see it through properly. And there's that auspicious ending. And we spoke about it uh, a few episodes ago in terms of not overstaying your welcome. And he was saying, you know, I'm starting to think about that right now. Yeah. So how has this episode, now it's all tied up, shifted our perceptions of Stuart, guys? So actually in that closing scene, we see Stuart Donald talking about how he feels that he as the management of the club needs time. And also that Jack Ross may need time, but, now he's talking about the idea that they may not develop the club as fast as the fans expect. I almost feel like he's actually farming out the blame just that little bit further for the whole entire Will Grigg thing and the fact that because the club have spent so much money, the expectations grow of fans. And I think he's now 
he's blaming the fans for expecting something from Will Grigg, who he says is at the club because he's blaming Jack Ross for it. When at the end of the day, the book should have stopped with him for this. And so he comes across as naive in one sense, because I don't think he fully gets it. And conniving in another is, it's a harsh way of looking at it. But at the same time, your perception of Stuart Donald completely changes. He no longer seems like the kind of affable kind of a man who kind of expects the, to be able to change football in his own minor way as a custodian of the club that's going to get out of the way. He now suddenly just seems like another man throwing money at it because he's trying to chase his ego. Yeah, I mean, is yeah. he a noble man just caught up in everything? Or is that what he's like anyway? Like, to what extent is the system to blame and to what extent is he to blame as a person? The system that is football, I presume you mean in that. Yeah. I think he's not the first person to fall victim of it. And I think, you know, everyone can attest to at some point or another kind of just falling prey to getting into the moment and just chasing something and maybe making, you know, it might, you might be just buying something random in Ikea because you just happen to have the money to spare, but it's, it's, it's still blowing your budget or just forgetting what's your means for just a minute, gambling too much of the horses. I don't know. Exactly, and I think ultimately his his reputation will have been damaged by this incident because um, Wigan has has played him like a kipper with um, this particular transfer window. And you have to remember, this is his essentially his first transfer window, his first deadline day. And you know, other clubs will take notes and think, "Oh, new sons an owner. Oh, he's not afraid to be." opening his wallet perhaps if we reject the first deal they'll come back and offer us twice again because you know now a precedent has been set in how Stuart um, you know other clubs will expect Stuart to treat transfer windows when they're playing purchasing players so I think you know it, it's, it's very negative for him because I don't even know if he can I don't know how much money he's got available or you know, he talks about how, you know, the whole idea was they're going to try and turn it into a profit-making business and he's thrown out completely to the to the walls and can, can he afford even to, to open his checkbook again, especially if they're stuck in the uh, doldrums of League One where there's not much money to be made. It, it goes back to what's happened to Manchester United under Ed Woodward, that it's taken years to rehabilitate the club in transfer negotiations after Ed Woodward got played like a kipper, to use Nick Simile, you know, I think twice or three times before Woodward really kind of copped on and kind of understood how to play the market and maybe United got in a position where they no longer looked as desperate in so many positions like Sunderland did with just the striker position in this transfer market. As you say, it's just it is how other clubs are going to view them that, you know, if you reject them and they need a player, they're going to come back. They're not going to hold for it. They're not going to gamble on their academy. They're not going to find resourcefully find some lone player or some French player that they can just bring in to replace them. They just didn't have that news. No, certainly not. And I think it just, for whatever reason, it just doesn't look that good. And with Stuart himself, I mean, he doesn't... I've had a, look, a little look into the financials at Bridal Insurance, who is the company that he owned and then sold on. He sold it on to another big conglomerate and you know, it's a bit boring. But yeah, it's about £10 million is what they've got under management. Uh, gross women premium, that is. And 17 people, including Neil Fox, um, who moved to Finch Group, who is one of the lackeys that you see in this episode. Uh, so Stuart isn't actually the richest man in the world. Yeah, yeah, okay. But I mean, he's richer and we all want, we'd all want the amount of money he's got in the bank, no doubt. But he's not a sugar daddy to any extent. I think you're probably looking at one-digit millions, not tens of millions. He's not really a multi-millionaire in, in the kind of sense that we want him to be. Uh, he's just made quite a big gamble to buy this club. And it looks like from the background as well that I've read, like he initially was going to go in as part of a consortium for lots of people and end up just buying the club outright, which again kind of count, points to a bit of a gambler uh, rather than there being a bit of a, a, a bit of nous behind it. I don't know. Um, I, I just think this episode really challenges and in some ways erodes that sort of whiter than white idealised paragon image he was trying to give and it kind of feels like a bit of a build them up tear them down doesn't it this episode because i guess if you are just an audience member who's breezing through the episodes i mean this one just really just destroys his reputation i guess or the way in which he has been perceived previously yeah exactly <laughs> it's just i think you know in the first three episodes the jury was out i wouldn't have necessarily said he came across like a paragon i'll certainly say the jury was out we'll see what happens with this guy how he can develop whether they can deliver on the promises and certainly the promises that charlie was making quite intensely over the last few episodes to both the staff and the public and uh yeah it's just 
clearly this episode everything is starting to unravel you can see the blame game starting to build up and i think certainly the blame game is going to be um, a heavy feature of the next couple of episodes as well I think it's more it was more like the way he was projecting himself as a paragon rather than him being a paragon himself if that makes sense the mm-hmm. projection of the yeah. self but yeah no very interesting but at least we completely forgot about Josh Marger right eh? that feels like a long time ago now doesn't Marger. it Marger exactly Marger making it tougher Marger so dominated by office drama uh, did we like this episode guys yeah, I think it was absolutely brilliant. Um, it actually reminded me of in the the lead series, the episode with Daniel James. It's kind of a kind of a contrast to that, and that they actually get the player at the end. You'll remember Daniel James was actually at Leeds and didn't sign for the club in that particular episode, and so you saw a totally different side of the frustration that comes in boardrooms. Whereas here, you probably saw. Leeds looked like they were getting a good deal, and certainly with hindsight, it looks like a brilliant deal that they were going to get for him then whereas here you know obviously hindsight poisons the view of it and you know there was that whole one in ten or one in a hundred chance that this is going to prove to be a great deal even at three to four million pounds but it's it's amazing to watch i think the frustration the ignoring advice everything that goes it's it's not what you see usually as a football fan and i think that's what a fly in the wall documentary like this offers and i think that's what's brilliant about it I think, yeah, it's, it's really, really interesting. I think we've all probably stayed up watching Sky Sports News on, on deadline day between 10 and midnight, thinking, is anything actually going to happen? Uh, you know, why am I wasting my evening watching this when nothing's actually happening? But it's quite interesting to see the other side of the coin, you know, the, the men in the boardrooms, they're sitting there, they're on their phones, they're trying to make deals, they're, you know, panicking. I mean, yeah, the good, uh, Daniel James' um, comparison is very interesting as well, because obviously, I'm thinking that one, Swansea went missing and they just couldn't get hold of Swansea at all, regardless. And the play was there. He essentially signed all the paperwork, had his medical done, everything, and they couldn't get it over the line because the other team had just gone completely AWOL. And, uh, you know, that was very frustrating for Leeds. And in this scenario, it's kind of very different. You don't know what's going on. Wigan's side, whether they think he's back, he's asked again, more money, what's going on, you know? like Or are they just like knowing that they're playing him deliberately like a kipper? Because there's, you know, there's no real phone calls. It's all through agents. It's all through third parties. And that's just the... I think it's all via faxes as well for some reason. Obviously, you've got famous David De Gea <laughs> signing for Real Madrid, missing fax um, saga and stuff. And, uh, so, yeah, it's really interesting to watch. I also enjoy in this episode the fact that we explore so many different ways of expressing your exasperation in the English language. I think it's like if you were a non-native English speaker, this was the episode to watch if you wanted to kind of get some vocab for going into an office in the future. It was (laughs) ridiculous. They kept saying it in different ways. I I found that pretty funny. Oh, yeah, for sure. No, very, um, very uh, episode dominated by harumphing and face palming and sighing and ex- like exclaiming your disregard for the other person right hmm. i i did really like this episode i i think fundamentally what's incredible about the way it's shot and the way it's presented is that it's again made a load of people in an office just talking about stuff very very interesting uh, that's one hell of an achievement isn't it like if they came into our offices during normal times it would not be interesting at all It'd be loads of people talking about stuff which was not interesting but for this particular episode it was it was absolutely fascinating and there was no real kind of luco nine moment like in the last episode where you've got at least some sort of light relief from it it was all proper heavy stuff and it was all sort of perceptual as well because you saw it happening to them. You saw it happening to Stuart. You saw him change. You saw him walk before your very eyes. But it all kind of happened in a very sort of mundane way when you think about it, didn't it? It didn't happen in sort of some weird kind of horrible metamorphosis. You saw him kind of just uh, driven by sweets and lucasade change into an irrational monster. And I thought that was absolutely brilliantly done. And I, I'm guessing, you know, as I said, after that, point our episode felt like a bit of an aftershock but i mean the blame game already starting as nick mentioned is definitely going to be something which is uh, going to be worth watching as, as this sort of continues isn't it cool all right well anything else to mention on this crack through that yeah that was uh, remarkably quick yeah no nick's just touching his beard all right um what are you gonna do about your beard nick go at some point it's all gonna go. I think you my hair as well. You, I, think, I think you can like donate that to like places as a flood relief. 
Mm. You know, if you put it in tights, like it's like if you put beard hair in tights, it's like water, waterproof as well. It's like putting a sandbag down. Well, um, if I if I get my hair cut in the garden, the birds might use it to make their nests. <laughs> I was I was thinking hedgehog houses, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh god. I, I I think I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna go money. the whole way. Raise some money for the NHS or something. I, I'm probably going to go the whole way on the, the hair front anyway and let it grow longer for a while. I've got at least another three weeks here before hairdressers are open, so I might be able to go man bun just for one episode. Oh, my. Yeah, I've, got, I've got a little while. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what I'll do. I'll probably just get Sarah to cut it for me. Me? No, no. no. As, 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 I told you, it's as far as it goes. Just a quick shit. No. It doesn't fill out. So it just ends up looking. It's a lot. Of hair, it's a bit hairy if you go close to it. But there's a, a whole area that's just bald, and it's just, it, the hair will never grow there. It's depressing, isn't it? Uh, who's going to say just to say? I haven't done it in ages. I don't yeah. think I've done it since. Um... Yeah. <laughs> uh, and with that, we've reached the end of this particular watch along, and we'll be looking forward to coming back for episode five next week. But in the meantime, just to say, we are, of course, who got the assist. You'll find us on Twitter at WGTA underscore FPL or WGTA underscore Nick for Nick, or you'll find me, FPL Stag, at FPL Stag. We're also on Instagram as well at WGTA dot FPL. Yep, and as Stag said, we'll be back next week to talk about Season 2, Episode 5, and it's titled A Time for Men. Yeah, definitely have the beers to fulfil that manliness, don't we? We will do indeed, unless, <laughs> unless it all goes between this time. Unless I have a sort of Stuart Donald's infused midnight breakdown and just shave my entire head off. Uh, like Marshall is wedding helmet mother alright well stay safe everyone I uh, hope this you watch something until I die and we're back very very soon bye Slana. oh it's a goal who got the assist who got the assist Sports Social Podcast Network <laughs>